Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. We are going to finish the book of Malachi today. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, Malachi, it's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi is the last of the um, prophets to speak to the nation of Israel prior to uh, what is known as the 400 years of silence. In between the Old Testament and the New Testament, though it's just one page to turn for you and I, it's 400 years that elapse in that time. And we don't have anything recorded uh, in the Holy Scriptures as to the events that took place. And so Malachi, after the exiles exiles come back from Babylon, um, speaks to them as a last-ditch effort almost to, for God to say, hey, get things right, give your life back to me. And it's a a call to repentance. And and so um, that, spoiler alert, we mentioned last week, those things go unheeded. Uh, the people of Israel don't necessarily listen to what Malachi has to say. And so 400 years go by, Jesus rolls on the scene, and we have what's known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and they are the religious people of the day, and it's the seeds that were planted at the time of Malachi become the Pharisees and Sadducees that Jesus takes to task time and time again while he walks the earth. The format for the book of Malachi is kind of interesting in that God makes these seven statements, and in the statements he is proclaiming something. And then there is a response from the people of Israel to say, well, in what way has that happened? Hey, Reese, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, but could you just turn it on just a little more, please? Because I'm going to get louder. So I don't want to hurt anybody. We're trying to get used to a new microphone, so. All right. Um, And a new sound guy for this Lily's back on her way home, so <laughs> thank you, Reese, for filling it. Anyway, where was I? Seven statements. Seven statements with these seven responses that the nation would have, and, and God is, is speaking it all. He says the statement, and then he says, well, then you say. And so I wanted, we covered four of the first four last week. I wanted to review those as we get started this morning. So the first one was, I have loved you, God says. And then the responding question was, well, how have you loved us? And what I said for our lives is, um, when we ask that question, how have you loved us, God? We, we must be intentional about fanning the fire of our heart for God. How do we do that? You answer the question, how has God loved us? And it was two words, the cross. That's how God loved us. While we were at sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the ultimate example of love. Even though we would want to spit in his face, as the Hebrew people did, he still died for us. Number two was, you've despised my name. The question was, well, how have we despised your name? Um, And the warning for you and I is we must be intentional about showing God honor and respect. We should lay our lives down, the way we speak, the things that we say, the things that we do, all should be leveraged for his glory. We devote our time our talent, and our treasure to him. Number three was, you offered to file food on my altar. The question was, well, how do we do that? 
And, the, and then the ultimate, or the question for you and I is, well, we don't offer food on an altar at all. But our application is we've got to be intentional about offering God our very best. God doesn't get our leftovers. God doesn't get what we have remaining. He's the, he is to get the first fruits of our lives, not the leftover scraps. We can fall into the mentality, well, if there's room in the budget, we'll give more to God. Or if I have more time, I'll do more for God. That's not the right approach to our lives with Christ. We are, he is to get the first and the best that we have to offer. And the fourth one was, you have wearied the Lord. How have we wearied the Lord was the question back. And our application is we've got to be intent on holding to the attributes of God as given to us through his word. The, the way that they were wearying God was they were twisting what the word said about God. We don't ever want to do that. We don't do twisted scripture around here. Okay? All right, so those are the first four. We'll cover the other three today as we go through chapters three and four. Everybody with me? Malachi chapter 3. Let me get my Bible out. Verse 1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That sounds familiar, most likely. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Remember, it's interesting to note in the book of Malachi 47, of the 55 verses in the book of Malachi are written in the first person, as though God were speaking in the first person. It's the highest percentage of all the books of the Bible. 47 of 55 verses, God is speaking to the people. And we just, we see that again. He says, behold, I send my messenger. Malachi didn't know who that was, but because we live between the advents of Jesus Christ, the first and second advent, we know who the messenger was. Who was it? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the messenger. He's the one Jesus speaks of in Luke chapter 7. Because um, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare a way before me. That's how we know it's not Jesus. It's somebody else preparing the way before Jesus. This is what Jesus says of the messenger, John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 7. Uh, when the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. Jesus says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those, are, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in the king's court. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, here's what he says of John. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare a way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So Jesus specifically uses the scripture from Malachi to say the messenger that was going before me, before God, is in fact John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. So we have Malachi, we have 400 years of silence, and then John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin, um, uh, comes on the scene, and he is the one who Isaiah speaks of, is who is making the flat, rough places plain, the mountains flat. He is preparing the way of the Lord. He's behold, behold the king is coming. That is John the Baptist's role. Notice it says there in verse 1, 
that he's preparing a way before me. Notice the me is capitalized. The messenger is making a way before God. God doesn't send a scapegoat here. God doesn't send somebody else to do his job. It's he himself who is coming. And then it says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. When Jesus came on the scene, did we see him come into the temple? Yeah, remember when he turned over the money changers' tables? Remember what he said? When Jesus came to the temple and overthrew the money changers' tables, the scribes and the Pharisees asked him, well, What authority do you do this by? Well, Malachi tells us, when I come to my temple, <laughs> whose authority? It's my temple. I'll do what I want in my temple. Which is an interesting tie-in to where the temple is today. Right? Where is the temple? You and I are the temple. Whose temple? His temple. He can do what he wants in our lives, right? Or we're supposed to allow him to do what he wants in our lives. Um, it says there, uh, um, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger, notice here, this time the messenger is capitalized. Even the messenger of the covenant, different than the messenger who was preparing a way before me. This is now speaking of somebody who's bringing in the new covenant. Jesus said at the last supper, likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. He is also the messenger in that he is bringing in and ushering in this new way, new covenant for you to, and I. Verse 2. Um, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. <laughs> what a great term. He's like launderer's soap, which is not easy to say, strangely enough. Who can stand before him? We know the scripture. There are none righteous, no, not one. None of us in our own strength and our own efforts can stand before God and say, yes, we are holy. We've done perfectly. We've held to your standard. We all fall short of that standard. There are none righteous, no, not one. Scripture also tells us every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess. We either bow our hearts now or we'll bend our knee later. Every knee shall bow. Okay. who can stand when he appears for he is like a refiner's fire this is describing the messenger this is describing the covenant that he brings the refiner's fire he's like the launderer's soap what are those? those are purifying agents right? the launderer's soap makes the clothing clean the refiner's fire refines the, the silver so that all the dross comes out it's his covenant in the new blood that acts as the purifying agent for you and I. He cleanses us. He refines us. He purifies us. I got to go to Spurgeon for this one. You know me, right? Love Spurgeon. He says, if any of you, my hearers, are seeking the Lord at this time, I want you to understand what it means. You are seeking a fire which will test you and consume much which has been dear to you. We are not to expect Christ to come and save us in our sins. He will come and save us from our sins. Therefore, if you are enabled by faith to take Christ as a Savior, remember that you take him as the perjurer and the purifier, for it is from sin that he saves us. Like the launderer's soap, like the refiner's fire. Uh, verse 3 says, He will sit as a refiner, 
and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, that's the priests, and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the former, as in the days of old, and as in the former years. Remember what we learned last week? The priests were allowing the people to offer blind sacrifices and lame sacrifices. I've got this three-legged lamb. Well, can we sacrifice him? He's not going to do me any good anyway. Yeah, bring him in. The Lord doesn't care. Instead of offering the best and the first fruits, they were offering the blind, the weak, the lame. And so God is saying here in verse 4, I'm going to set these things right. The apathy in their faith had set in. It wasn't a it wasn't a relationship with God any longer. It had become a, a religion. And when Christ came, he became the perfect sacrifice, the lamb without spot or blemish. He acted on our behalf, and that sacrifice was pleasant to the Lord. Isaiah says of that sacrifice in Isaiah 53, they made his grave with the wicked, or with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. What an amazing statement. God was pleased to sacrifice his own son on our behalf. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Uh, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Speaking of the Savior, it was pleasant to the Lord to offer Christ as the perfect sacrifice. Verse 5 says, I'll come near you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against sorcerers. I listened to Joe Foch all week. Joe is the pastor at Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia, and he has a Philadelphian accent. So every time he said sorcerers, it was saucers. Like, what's he got to get sauce? I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> I'll be swift against. I'll be a swift witness against sorcerers. <laughs> sorcerers. He says terrible too. Just so you know, Joe says terrible. That's terrible. <laughs> anyway. I'll be swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, against those who turn away an alien. Because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. We need to remember the attributes of who God is. Remember what God's word says about him. Jesus tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, that he is both just and the justifier. His first advent was to bring peace. We are refined from his first advent. In his second coming, in, the, in his second advent, he is bringing the sword of justice. And we'll begin to study that in the book of Revelation in about six weeks. In his second advent, he's bringing the sword of justice against those who do not fear him, those that are listed here. We need to fear the Lord. What does that mean? We shake in our boots? I think there should be a little bit of trepidation when we approach the throne of God. But Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Anybody ever say, I don't want wisdom? I don't want to be wise. I'd prefer to be dumb. Thank you. Well, ignorance is bliss. I suppose there is that statement. Though not true. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Where do we begin our wisdom track? Is by fearing the Lord. What does fear mean? Fear. To have a deep respect for To have a reverence for who he is. That we would come before him with some trepidation in awe of all that he has done on our behalf. So we are to fear the Lord lest we find ourselves on that list. Verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? First thing that we, I want us to notice, he says, I do not change. One of the attributes of God, one of the characteristics that we ascribe to God is he is changeless. You don't change perfection. Anytime you add something to perfection, it makes it imperfect. You know, whatever it is, you cannot add anything to perfection and make it more perfect. Anytime you add anything to perfection, it makes it imperfect. So he does not change. Jesus, or the book of Hebrews says it this way, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. He is always the same. And then we see the fifth statement and response. The statement, return to me and I will return to you. And the question, the response, well, in what way shall we return to you? What he's looking for is repentance. And I love the opportunity to talk about repentance anytime I get the opportunity as we study the word of God. To repent, it's a Christianese term, but it's one that we all need to understand. To repent means to do an about-face. It means to turn the other way. It means we're walking away from God, and we need to walk toward God. Skating terms, we pull 180, right? We talked about that. If you're a skateboarder, you pull a 180. That's, what, that's the idea. If you're driving in a car, and you're driving on 71 North, to repent is to get off, to turn around and come back on 71 South. That's what it is. To repent, that's what God wants of us. It's the way we turn to him. It's to turn away from sin, and that's what he's looking for in the Hebrew people. We've got to be intentional about bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8 says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Our lives should show that we have, in fact, repented, that we have turned toward him, and that we are continuing to repent. But they ask the question, in what way shall we return? God's going to tell them, the Hebrew people, how he wanted them to return as he makes statement number six, weaving it all together. Verse eight, he asks the question, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and in offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing, there will not be room enough to receive it. Statement and question number six, will a man rob God? Or you have robbed me, he says. In what way have we robbed you? That question is astonishing to me. Can a man rob God? The answer is no. There's no way. that God is the all-seeing, all-knowing, 
all-powerful God. There is no way that we can rob him. And yet he says, you have robbed me, or at least you think you have. How foolish it is to think that we might rob God. But how had they robbed God? And it's specific here, in their giving. In their tithes and offerings. The law, the Mosaic law, had prescribed a way for them to give. They were to give a tithe. What does a tithe mean? It's one-tenth. They were to give one-tenth of their income to the temple, to the tribe of Levi. The, the Levites were set aside as priests to offer sacrifices on behalf of the entire nation. That was their role. They didn't raise um, animals. They didn't farm the land. They, didn't, they weren't word workers or um, ironsmiths or anything like that. They didn't have those roles. They were the priests. They mediated between the people and God. And so they needed provided for. So they would be provided for in the tithe. They were to give one-tenth of their earnings, their money, their livestock, their produce. This was the practical way the tribe of Levi was cared for. And in the people's apathy at the time of Malachi, they were slacking in their giving, and people were going hungry. The tribe of Levi was not being cared for. What's my application? What's your application in regards to this? Are we, as the church, the bride of Jesus Christ, still under the time? Is this something that we are still to uphold? Well, the word would tell us we are no longer under the law, but under grace. So does that mean we're under the tithe? That we should give the tithe? Or that we are expected to give the tithe? I would say no. We're no longer under the law. We're under the grace. But the New Testament often speaks of giving and being generous. Um... 1 Corinthians, if you want to jot this down out to the side, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. He says, now concerning the collection, this is Paul speaking, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collection when I come. So that tells us there is a plan for the church to set something aside. It's periodic. He tells us to do it on the first day of the week. It's planned. Know what you're going to give. It's proportional. Lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. It's proportional. And it's private. We're not supposed to let each other know what our plans are. Do not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. This is between you and the Lord. So we have that to ascribe to. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he says this, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. As God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, they have an abundance for every good work. So the first in 1 Corinthians 16, our giving, our generosity is to be periodic, is to be planned, is to be proportional, and is to be private. Here in 2 Corinthians 9, our giving should be generous. It should be freely given. That's the reason we don't pass the plate here. In case you ever wondered why this church does not pass the plate, is because 
I have felt when the plate was passed and I didn't put something in that I felt convicted or, or um, that's not the right word, condemned. And I don't want anybody to ever have to feel that. We are to give generously from our heart. And so we provide another way for you to do that. You guys know that the box is over there. If you want to give to our church, then that's how you do it. You can give online privately um, through our website. You're welcome to do that as well. So we give you opportunities to give, but I don't want anybody to ever feel like we are compelling you to give. I don't want anybody to ever give grudgingly. Be cheerful about what you're giving. That's the heart that we're supposed to have. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 is the principle that I try to live by. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. If we make God our priority with our time, our talent, our treasure, he will take care of us. I'm a living testimony to that. God has continually sustained me and my family. Am I going to tell you to tie? No. I'm going to tell you to seek the Lord and what he would have you give. I will tell you 10% is a great place to start. We have lived, Michelle and I, have lived far better on 90% of our income than we did on 100% of our income. When we decided to make, the, when we made the decision that we were going to be faithful in our giving to the church, we live far better on 90% than we do on 100%. You're tracking with me. So I would encourage you to seek the Lord and pray about those things. He says in verse 11, uh, this is funny to me, or it's interesting to me. Um, if I can find it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. The call is for them to get back to giving to the nation or giving to the tribe of Levi, providing for them. And in that, God would respond by making sure that they have all they need. It's the principle of Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom and he will take care of you. What's funny to me is that this principle is often twisted by TV preachers. You know my affinity for TV preachers, right? <laughs> And what they make it sound like is, if you give God 10%, he will protect you. That's Malachi, the Italian prophet. <laughs> he works for the Godfather, not for Father God. You give me 10% and I'll take care of you. That's not the principle here. That's not what God is saying. Our giving does not buy God's protection. God cares for us because we are his sons and his daughters. And he loves us. And us giving is not to buy protection. It's our response to what he gave us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave to us long before we ever gave to him. And so our response is, this is how we show that we love him. We give him our time. We give him our talent. We give him our treasure. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord. And the way that God cared for his people of Israel, the people of Israel and their land, he cares for his bride. We don't have a land as the bride of Christ. We are his bride. All right, number seven, our statement number seven. 
Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. Ouch. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinances and that we have walked as his mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we are called the proud, or sort of, so now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and grow free. The statement, your words have been harsh. The response, well, what have we said? What did they say? Uh, it's not worth serving the Lord. In their apathy, they couldn't even see the benefit of serving God. Years and years ago, um, when we were serving at our other church, I designed a um, bumper sticker. And uh, we had like a thousand of them made and we gave them all out. But it was a, it posed the question, we put it on all the bumpers of all of our cars, whether you wanted it or not, it ended up on your car in the parking lot. Which is what we're doing right now, just so you know. <laughs> no. um, they posed the question, what if you're wrong about Jesus? Consider the consequences. What if you're wrong about Jesus? Consider the consequences. And here's the thought behind that. And I think this is what I want to get to as we understand statement number seven. If somebody is wrong in their understanding of Jesus, in their unbelief, in other words, they don't believe Jesus is the Savior, if they're wrong about that, then they spend an eternity separated from God. They spend an eternity tormented. They spend eternity in hell. If I'm wrong about Jesus, I'm not. But if I'm wrong about Jesus, then what have I done? I've spent my life loving people. I've spent my life sacrificing so that others can do better. I've had joy. I've had hope. I've had peace because I followed after this religion that ends up not being true. That's not the case. It's going to be true, trust me. What if you're wrong about Jesus? Consider the consequences. So first you have to ask the question, what, what do I believe about Jesus? And then what if I'm wrong? If I'm wrong, I've lived a great life. They couldn't see that. They couldn't understand in their apathy the benefit of serving the Lord. I can. I understand serving the Lord. It's been a joy. It's been a pleasure. Has it been easy? No, not all the time. I love when the Lord makes me live according to what I've said. So one of the things I said last week is it, um, it's not a sacrifice if it's convenient. All week long, I was just like dragging. It's been an incredibly difficult week at work. It's been challenging. There's extra hours, lots of things involved. Thursday night, we're trying to clean up the house so that it makes it presentable. We live with four kids. Our house is very rarely presentable, but we had people coming over to label water bottles, so we're trying to get the house ready. We're scrambling. You guys know, parents know how that goes. You're throwing the cat in the dishwasher and just with everything into the dishwasher and just, you know, sweeping everything under the rug. Friday comes and you know, I put out the word, hey, is anybody coming to work Friday? No response, no response. I'm saying, okay, are we going to do this even? That was the question after I had worked, you know, five, eight and a half hours, nine hours that day. Am I going to bother to go? Yeah, I'm going to go. Why? Because it's not a sacrifice if it's convenient. I got tested in that statement all week long. 
So we go and we set up, and Matt and Amy show up, and it's you know, and the Leap of Faith people are there, and our family's there, and we're standing in the middle of State Street and Main Street, handing out 250 bottles of water in an hour, and it was a joy. It was a blast to see people go, what, what are you doing this for? It's our church, and we're just giving information about our church. But you look thirsty, here you go. Wow, thank you. We appreciate that. What church? Tell me about it. Where, you know, and, and it started many different conversations. And it was a joy to be able to do that on Friday night, even though my flesh said, no, I don't want to do that. I'd rather stay at home. They couldn't even see, the people couldn't even see the benefit of serving the Lord, but we can. We need to ascribe to that. Where are we at? 16? Uh, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before them for those who fear the Lord and who mediate on his, or, sorry, meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I make them my jewels, I will spare them, as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. He saved us. We seek, we serve him. That's our response. Let's finish the book. Chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Have you guys paid any attention to the news lately? And the frequency in which um, natural disasters are occurring, it seems to be constant. Anymore, right? We've got the forest, the, the fires in Northern California, uh, the fires in the, dual, the twin fires in Greece this week, earthquakes all the time, the lava flow in Hawaii, the tornadoes killing in Iowa. It just seems constant that there is something going on. And you and I look at that, and then you look at the morality of the world and the way the world is falling apart, and we have the tendency to say, What? It's spinning out of control, right? This world is going crazy. It's spinning out of control. That's a misnomer. The world is not out of control. Nothing is out of his control. He is exacting his perfect plan. Everything is going according to that plan, which is way different than our plan, is it not? But he is in control. It says there in verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. It's not burning like a forest fire. A forest fire is out of control. It's burning like an oven. An oven is a controlled fire. He has everything under control. Even in his justice, God is perfectly intentional. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. See, I'm just doing what Scripture says. I can fact. If we repent, if we live for God, it tells us there that the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings. He heals us. 
He purifies us like a refiner's fire, like the launderer's soap. He blesses us. He cares for us. It tells us that we will go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. What does that mean? If you were to keep a calf in a stall, they become very mundane. They become listless and lifeless. And when you release this, the calf to the pasture for the very first time, you can watch this on YouTube. When you release a calf to the pasture for the very first time, they go crazy. They jump around and they're, they're excited and they're, like, it's, there's life all of a sudden. That's what God is saying your life will be like when we surround or when we surrender ourselves to him. Uh, healing will come in his wings. The sun of righteousness will arise in our lives and we'll be excited like a, like a calf going out to pasture for the very first time. Just a, a, a support verse for Calvary Chapel. So. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. Our victory is found in him. The parting command of the Old Testament here given is to remember the law of Moses. God was wooing them back to where they needed to be, get back to the way things were established. He says, behold, I send you, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. We have a sign. We have something that we are to be looking for as Christ returns, and that is Elijah was to come. Now, it's interesting, this was fulfilled by John the Baptist in a figurative sense. Jesus says uh, in Matthew 11, 14, Mark 9, and Luke 1, that John the Baptist, he says, if you'll accept this, is Elijah. So John the Baptist figure, fulfills this scripture in a figurative sense, but it says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The first advent of Christ was not the dreadful day of the Lord. That was the advent of peace. It's the second coming of Christ that his judgment is coming. So we have yet to look for Elijah coming. So David Guzik says this, uh, Yet because this Elijah comes before the, great, the coming of the great and dreadful day, we know that the... Elijah prophecy is only completely fulfilled before the second coming of Jesus. John 17, Revelation chapter 11, speak of this future fulfillment when, John, when God will either send Elijah back to earth to, uh, on this special errand or send somebody uniquely empowered in the spirit and the office of Elijah. It's interesting, in anticipation of this, Jewish homes set a place at the table during the uh, Passover for Elijah. There's an empty spot at the Passover table for Elijah, just in case he might come on that night to announce the news that Messiah has come. The empty chair and the cup that is filled but never drank is a testimony to their anticipation of Elijah coming. So this is something that we are to be looking for. I think it's interesting, as the Old Testament closes, we hear of both Moses and Elijah. Moses is the representation of the law. Elijah is the representation of the prophets. 
what God is saying. It's uh, significant in these closing words of the Old Testament that God makes reference to both Moses and Elijah. They both met God at Mount Sinai. They both met Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. And we are guessing, I think, that in Revelation 11, when it speaks of the two, the two witnesses, that it's going to be with Moses and Elijah. So that's what we are to be looking for. Last verse. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Interesting. The Old Testament ends with the threat of a curse. And were it not for his love for us, that's where we would all be, is cursed. How does the New Testament end? How does the New Testament end? Revelation chapter 22, verse 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The New Testament, the Old Testament ends with a curse. The New Testament ends by speaking of his grace. His mercy triumphs over judgment, is what we can say. So, that closes the book of Malachi. Another one that we can check off of our list. I want to review the three statements that we covered today. Uh, so, Reese, if you would pull those up. Statement number five, I have loved you. And the responding question, well, how have you loved... No, that's the wrong one. There you go. So, I'm sorry. So, number five, return to me, and I will return to you. And then the question, in what way shall we return? Our answer is repentance. That's how we return to God. Repentance is what he wants. It's the way we turn to him. We've got to be intentional about bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, that our lives would show, in the words of Matthew 3, that we live for him. Statement number six, will a man rob God? In what way have we robbed you? Uh, we must be intentional about responding to God's love for us by being generous people. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things shall be added unto you. And then number, number seven, your words have been harsh. Well, what have we said? Our application, we must be intentional on in how we speak about our relationship with God. First Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. We've got to be ready to speak of the joy that we have in our lives. Eddie's full of joy. <laughs> so, seven statements, seven responses, seven applications that you and I can incorporate in our lives as we strive to follow him. He is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He has leveraged everything for us. We are to respond to him in worship by leveraging everything for him. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, I mentioned last week, just so you understand where we're headed next, as we close the Old Testament. For the month of August, we're going to step away from teaching chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and take a pause, a break from that. We're going to I'm going to teach four topical messages. The first one's going to be on 1 Kings chapter 8. Um, we're going to discuss why we call ourselves Church 860. We're going to look at the scripture around that, and we're going to talk about how that apply, applies to our lives. And then, and how we live an 860 life. And then after that, we're going to look at specific areas of our lives and how we can incorporate the 860 mentality into our lives. Church 860, family 860, work 860, what happened, okay? And so those are the things that we're going to cover over the next four weeks. 
After that, we're going to study the book of Titus with Danny. Danny's going to lead us through the book of Titus. And then after that, we'll begin the book of Revelation. So mid-September, we're looking at starting up Revelation. Okay, that's the plan for the next few weeks. All right, let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Thanks for hanging with me today. God, we thank you and praise you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace and mercy poured out through your son, Jesus Christ, that we might have the forgiveness of our sin. And that while we were yet sinners, Jesus, you died for the ungodly. Jesus, you are the lamb without spot or blemish, the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world, the perfect sacrifice. And it's boggling to the mind, God, that you would say it was your pleasure to sacrifice your son that we might have forgiveness. Pray that we could incorporate in our lives all of these applications, Lord, not so that we could be uh, boastful or better Christians, Lord, that we would always walk in humility, but just that we would respond rightly to the way that you love us, God. I pray that we would be a generous people, that we would give of our time and our talent and our treasure, Lord, and any place that we've hoarded the things that you've given us, Lord, that we would be more open-handed with them. Teach us your ways, God. Continue to equip your saints. I thank you for every soul that's here today and those watching online. And I pray that every person has considered the question, what if they're wrong about Jesus? And that they would consider the consequences. For those that don't yet know you, that they would place their faith in the saving love of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.